Our second reading today comes from the Gospel of Luke, the fifth chapter, beginning with the first verse. Let us continue listening now for a word from God. One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. Jesus saw at the water's edge two boats left there by fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When Jesus had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Now put out into deep water and lit down the nets for a catch. Simon answered him, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and to help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will fish for people. And so they pulled their boats up on shore. They left everything, and they followed him. Friends, these two are the words of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Today's sermon is titled, Full Nets. Let us pray. Good and gracious God, whatever it is we are casting for this day, we pray that you might fill our nets that you might fill our nets with your joy and with your hope and with a fresh word for the living of these days. O God, indeed, we pray for your spirit to come and dwell in our midst that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts will be pleasing in your sight. For you and you alone are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. There's a lovely story told about a woman named Gillian Lynn. She grew up a young girl in London in the 1930s. And from an early age, she knew she was different. She was fidgety, hyper. She was always on the move, didn't get great grades in school, often distracted other students. Nowadays, She likely would have received a diagnosis of ADHD or something like that, but that just didn't exist back in the 1930s. Eventually, though, it got to a point where her parents felt they needed to take her to a doctor. Her mother one day loaded her into the car, and they went to the doctor's office, and for the first 20 minutes or so of their visit, she sat on her hands as that doctor peppered her and her mother with all sorts of questions. 
After a time had passed, the doctor asked her mother if he could visit with her privately out in the hallway. As he got up to leave with her through the door, he turned the radio on his desk to on. And as soon as the door closed behind him and Jillian's mother, Jillian was up and moving, dancing. She died this past summer. Her obituary in the New York Times quoted her as saying that she remembered that moment. She was so swept up in dancing to the music on that radio, she even climbed onto that doctor's desk and danced. She didn't think anyone was watching her, but in fact, the doctor and her mother watched wide-eyed and mouths open through the window in the door. The doctor turned to her mother and said, Mrs. Lynn, Jillian's not sick. She's a dancer. And she was. From that moment, Jillian's life was never the same. Her mother took her to a dance school and enrolled her. She grew older and became the principal soloist of the Royal Ballet. After that, she met a man by the name of Andrew Lloyd Webber and became the principal choreographer of shows with names like Cats and Phantom of the Opera. Mrs. Lynn, Jillian's not sick. She's a dancer. You know, we're in the middle of this stewardship season, the second week when we are considering the theme of the generous life. Last week, we talked about giving our time as a way of living the generous life. Next week, we'll talk about giving our money as a way to live the generous life. This week, though, we talk about giving our talent. And in many ways, I think this middle week of this stewardship season is the most difficult. The reality is that even the busiest amongst us, we have a few minutes to give. Even the poorest or the cheapest amongst us, we have a few dollars we can give. But I think the reality is that many of us, both here and out in the world beyond, we struggle to know or really even believe that we have any talents, any gifts that we can give as a gift to God. We are, in a sense, like that eight-year-old girl before that doctor's appointment waiting for that aha moment. I looked around the church this morning and here in this service, and I think, too, about others in our own community, and I see many talented people here. I see here talented doctors and nurses, talented real estate agents and teachers and musicians and lawyers, talented entrepreneurs and business women and men, many talented people here in this sanctuary today. But the reality is I don't think what we do for a living or what we did for a living is necessarily what always makes us dance. I knew a doctor in Nashville who lived, literally lived for the weekend when she could get her trombone out and play with her trombone band. That's what made her dance. I met a lawyer once whose real passion was brewing. It wasn't a hobby, like he was passionate about brewing beer in his garage. 
I read once of a pastor who could do all this, could write the sermon, could lead the worship, could moderate the session meetings, but what he really loved to do was dress up as a clown and go to the children's hospital once a week. What we do is not always what makes us dance. And so the question on this week in this series on the generous life of giving our talents, the question of that life is what makes you dance? What is it that makes you feel as if you are pulling up those nets and there are more fish in there than you can count? So many, in fact, that you feel like you might sink in joy. What is it? Sometimes it is what we do for a paycheck, but often it is not. Some here today may know exactly what it is that makes them dance, but I think the reality is that many of us, both here and out there, we're still searching. We're still wondering. What is that gift that we have to offer? This sermon is really a sermon for those who are searching those who are still waiting for that aha moment. Because in many ways, our scripture from Luke is the story of people searching. There are three men plus Jesus at the start of the story, and by the end of the story, they're doing something completely different. They're searching, and in their searching, they are discovering that gift that God is calling them to use. And if we look closely at that story, I think there are lessons for us as well. I think there's a pattern even for those who are searching. Three things in particular stand out to me in this story. The first is that if you are searching for that talent that you can give as an offering to God, then you need to be patient. I mean, think of the profession that these three men, John, James, and Simon, are doing. They're fishermen. Fishing by its very nature demands patience. That's probably why I don't fish very often. And it turns out that the fishermen in our story may not have been that great at their profession before either. They tell Jesus, we've been fishing all night and we haven't caught a minnow. But Jesus tells them, go a little further. Wait a little longer. Be patient. The second lesson in this story for me about seeking and discovering what gifts we each have to offer is that there is a call to take risks. To take risks. There's that wonderful instruction Jesus offers. He's been in the boat. He's teaching the crowds on the shore. And then he turns to Simon. He says, push out to deep water. I've heard stories from some of you here who do enjoy fishing and can go quite far offshore, in fact, to fish. People who have been 20, 30, 40, even 100 miles offshore fishing. You've got to go out to the deep water to get those big fish, but with it comes a risk. Storms can pop up pretty fast out there. There's a certain danger involved in going to the deep water, and yet it is in the deep water of this story where they finally find what it is they've been searching for. And the third and perhaps most important lesson that this story offers, I think, is that there is a call, there's a reminder, in fact, 
that those who are searching for their gifts need to be more focused on the how than the what. Need to be more focused on the how than the what. This is one of those interesting stories that appears in all four of the Gospels. If you've read through the Gospels, you'll see that some stories repeat, some don't. This story shows up in all four of the Gospels, and John's telling is very similar to Luke's, but there's this one additional detail. John has Jesus instructing the disciples out there to not change what they're doing, but to change how they're doing it. Put your nets down on the other side, he says. And they do, and they pull up all these fish. They don't change what they're doing. They're still fishing. They just change how they're doing it. Barbara Brown Taylor tells the wonderful story about her somewhat difficult first days and months, really, of seminary. She showed up as a new student at Yale Divinity School, and she looked around and saw all these other fresh, brilliant faces And she was somewhat disturbed when she got there because it seemed like everyone around her knew exactly what it is God was calling them to do. Some were saying, as soon as I get that diploma three years from now, I'm going to go do more school, get my Ph.D. Maybe I'll be a professor somewhere. Others were saying, I know what God is calling me to do. God is calling me to the parish, to churches like this one or to smaller churches out in the rural areas of our country. Others were saying God has called me unequivocally to chaplaincy, to go and serve in a hospital or a prison. Barbara Brown Taylor was disturbed because she said, I didn't have the faintest clue why I was there to begin with, much less what I was going to do afterwards. So she did what any good seminarian will do. She started praying. First, she prayed each night by her bed, but struggled, didn't really feel much connection. She thought, maybe it's the place. She went to a quiet corner of the library, then to the chapel. Still, she struggled to find a place where she felt really like God was hearing her prayer and where she could hear God's reply. One day, she says, she noticed this old abandoned home on the outside edge of campus, this beautiful Victorian structure, and it had this old rickety fire escape down the side, and it had a keep out sign posted at the bottom. Barbara Brown Taylor saw that one night, and she thought to herself, maybe there's something waiting for me in the deep water of that upper step. And she climbed those stairs ever so careful that first night, and she sat down and prayed. She didn't hear reply at first. She had to be patient. Day after day, week after week, she returned to that old fire escape, praying to God for clarity, for some direction on what it was she was called to give as her gift of talent. And then one night, she writes, one night when my whole heart was open to hearing from God what I was supposed to do with my life, God answered. God said to me, Barbara, do anything that pleases you. What? 
And the voice spoke in her heart again, do anything that pleases you. At one level, she writes, that answer was absolutely no help at all. The ball was back in my court again, where God had left me all kinds of room to lob it wherever I wanted. I could be a priest or I could be a circus worker. God really didn't care. But at another level, at another level, she says, I was so relieved that I sledded down those stairs that night because I realized that whatever I decided to do for a living, it was not what I did, but how I did it that mattered. It was not what I did, but how I did it. See, I think the generous life, it has a lot more to do with how we do things than what we do. What if the generous life is not about each and every one of us finding that one exact gift, that one exact talent that God calls, calls us to put to use, but instead it is an invitation to focus on how we do everything. An invitation to treat every task, every opportunity to serve, as an opportunity to live out that greatest command to love our neighbor to choose kindness over meanness, to focus on making things better rather than making things worse. Brown Taylor uses in one of her books this wonderful image of a fender bender. I know, stick with me. When we make things worse, when we use our power to treat others poorly, it's like us knocking into someone else. And they're going to go and knock into someone else. And the ripples of that treatment are going to go far beyond ourselves. But when we treat people kindly, when we choose and focus on making things better rather than worse, it's like a pebble dropped into a pond with the ripples spreading out, affecting others. That sounds like a pretty generous life to me. Does it, do, does it to you? What if we chose to live our lives like that? Because when we do, I think what we will find is that life begins to feel a lot like we are pulling up these nets that are so full that we might sink in the joy that they give us. It's really the only way I can explain why certain people do what they do. One of the great privileges of being a church worker, of being a pastor, is just seeing all these quiet ministries that happen in this place every week. It's the only way I can explain why people choose to give up their lunch and their brunch hour to take these flowers after worship most Sundays and go back into the kitchen and put them in little vases and spread out to deliver them to homebound and sick church members that they might know some of the joy that was shared in this space and worship. That's someone who's focused on kindness. Focus on making things better rather than worse. It's the only way I can explain the existence, which really to my knowledge exists in no other church of our hospitality ministry team. There's a group in this church who, with a single phone call, will swing dozens of people into action to provide a reception for loved ones at time of death. 
after the funeral, that they might have a space to come into and feel the warmth and the embrace of their God. That's people who are focused on kindness, on making the world better than worse. It's the only reason I can explain people keep showing up month after month to serve at Manor House, and some who show up month after month to mop the floors and clean the toilets. They do those things because they are focused on treating others kindly. They realize the ways it connects themselves to others' lives. There are people in this church who fold the bulletins every Sunday and staple them with a great big smile on their face. There are people who pray for and write cards quietly each and every week to those who are grieving and those who are sick. How else can you explain people doing work and ministry like that? I was thinking, too, this week of Dave Snyder in our community, chef at Halyards and Tremici. He catered our capital campaign luncheon last month, and then he turned around the very next day, and he went to Mexico Beach, Florida, and served meals to residents and first responders there whose lives had literally been wiped off the map by Hurricane Michael. How else do you explain that? The only way to explain it is because those people in those activities and the giving of those talents, they find themselves pulling up those nets time after time again, full of God's love and God's joy. Henry David Thoreau once wrote, maybe implored is the better word, Writing, be not simply good, but rather be good for something. Imagine a church full of people who are intent on being good for something. People who are patient. People who are willing to push out into that deep water. People who focus on the how rather than the what. And in so doing, people who discover that they are not sick... They're dancers, people who discover those nets full time after time after time. That's a church that I want to belong to. That's a life that I wouldn't mind living. How about you? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.